No, yeah, Jackson was like low-key impressed, but also very judgy, which is honestly a fantastic combination. I love that. <laughs> right, yeah. It's like, uh, it's like, is there anyone here a doctor? I am. Well, you're a nerd. <laughs> like that kind of a deal. <laughs> Anyways, are you guys all in Nehemiah 13 now that we've <laughs> inserted that little filler? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so this chapter of Nehemiah 13, there's kind of a couple things that I want to talk about. Uh, there's kind of the main thrust of what's happening in the passage, but Nehemiah is a book that kind of brings up a lot of important issues just as side issues that it's important for us to discuss. So I'm going to try to kind of zoom through the main like proper points today because there's something in the last point that I do want to spend a bit of time on that I think is important for you guys to understand. So I'm not going to tell you what it is yet because suspense. Um, also, I might have forgotten. So... I'm kidding. That's not the actual reason. That'd be kind of embarrassing. Um, I just get up here and wing it, guys. I'm reading this passage for the first time, too. Um, I promise I'm joking. So, <laughs> but we're going to be talking about some important things in Nehemiah. And the first thing that I want to ask you guys is, like, have you ever made New Year's resolutions? No. Oh, yeah. You've I never? Have, I have to eat gluten every single day. To eat gluten every single Are you gluten-free? No. Because that'd be really funny. Yeah, gluten. To be the opposite of gluten. Yeah, I feel like that'd be a really easy New Year's resolution to, to keep say, too. To say get wrecked, wrecked gluten-free people. Yeah, right. Just flexing on those people with weakened systems. Have you kept your New Year's resolution? Has there anyone anyone else here made like yeah? Get more fit. Get more fit. Did you keep your New Year's resolution? Actually, yeah. Actually, yeah. Okay. Who made a New Year's resolution that they didn't keep? What was it? Do 10 minute abs every day. Do 10 minute ab workouts every day. How about you? Eat healthier. Eat healthier. So you are more fit, but you have not been eating healthier. I've been working out more, but the same time there. I feel that. So I stopped making New Year's resolutions because they never lasted they more never than a month. Lasted. Do people typically peep New Year's resolutions? <laughs> like how long? Like they, how long would you say you, a New Year's resolution on average lasts? 365 days. 365. Yeah. Yeah. 20 days? Yeah, I feel like 20 days is probably a fair one because you've got crazy people like you three, apparently, who can actually keep your resolutions. And then you've got the rest of the people like me who don't even make them. Like, like that's how long people usually go to the gym until they, like, something happens. Mm. They never go again. Yeah. No, yeah. Maintaining the habit is difficult. A lot of people start things with good intentions and then you give it a little bit of time, gone. And so the issue is we're about to read a chapter of a bunch of people who started out with good intentions, but then they just kind of didn't keep on. So one of the things I want you guys to think about is that it's really important that when you are approaching your life with God, like it's super common that maybe you go to a camp and you're like, man, I, I feel on fire for God now. I'm so into it. And then you go back to your regular life and like for a week, you're completely changed and different. And then a week and a half later, you're right back to where you were before the camp or something like that. Or maybe you read a passage and it just really speaks to you, like be respectful to your parents. And then five hours into the day, when your mom tells you to clean your room, you're like, I can't handle this. And you go right back to old sin patterns, right? And the issue is that a lot of times it's very easy to kind of be in those moments of, oh, I'm totally on fire. I'm having this experience but nothing actually changes. 
And the issue is it's always easy when you're like riding emotions to have a brief change in the beginning, but actually maintaining character growth is something that requires discipline and commitment. So we're going to look at basically Nehemiah contrasted with all of the people Nehemiah was ruling and we're going to see, okay, who was actually able to keep the follow through. And it's been a hot second since we've kind of been in Nehemiah proper. So what is the storyline of Nehemiah? Who can remind me? What, what all's been happening? Nehemiah wants to build a wall. Nehemiah wants to build a wall. With no context, I think there's a political joke in there somewhere. But yeah, Nehemiah wants to build a wall. What wall? Jerusalem's wall. And why is he wanting to build Jerusalem's wall? Is it to keep the immigrants out? That and... <laughs> <laughs> that is not the reason. <laughs> God, God did not command him to. That's actually an interesting one. So, um, but why, yeah, so basically Nehemiah is a Jew. He's looking at Jerusalem. Jerusalem is just torn apart, broken up. And he's wanting to go back to the country to rebuild its walls. And while he's there, what's been happening? While he's been rebuilding the walls, has it been all hunky-dory? What's been going wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tobiah and Sanblat, two of the officials in the area, are trying to actively stop him. And what are some things that they tried to do? Kill him. Kill him. Yeah, kill him. Kill the people working with him. Um, discourage them. Yeah, blackmail was another one. Yeah, they tried to blackmail him. Um, and then what are some other issues that Nehemiah has been facing? Has it just been the officials from outside? Also the Jews. He's got Jewish officials that are kind of oppressing the poor people among the land. He's got people that are not being faithful. He's got all kinds of problems, both within and without. So this has not been an easy ride for him. And now we're actually coming to the end of the book. And who can remind me what happened in our previous lesson? What did we learn about them doing? So like they brought out the book of the law and like they're reading it. Mm -hmm. Like everyone was there. Yep. So they shouldn't like grieve or anything? Yeah. Yeah. So basically they finish building the wall and after all this grueling labor and opposition, they come together, they read the book of the law, they have this massive worship session, and then they, they celebrate the Feast of Booths. And this is where I'm starting to fill in the stuff that we haven't gotten to. But in chapter 9, they start celebrating the Feast of Booths. And it's like this Feast of Booths celebration that hasn't even happened since like the days of Joshua. So since the days of Joshua, which is hundreds of years beforehand, there has not been a celebration like this one. And basically, they have this total spiritual hilltop experience. Everyone of the, Jew, of the Jews and the exiles and the Levites, they get together and they even write up a contract between them and God. And they're like, we are going to be completely faithful to God. We are going to obey the law. We are going to do the things that are written. And they all sign it. And there's two chapters of people, of just the names of the people who signed this contract to be faithful to God. So total hilltop experience. And so that is where we're coming into what we're talking about today. So in Nehemiah 13, I'm just going to read in verse 1. And it says, On that day they read from the book of the law of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Who knows who Balaam is? The donkey guy. The donkey guy. Yeah, Balaam's the donkey guy. So that's, from, that's a reference to the book of Numbers. And if you guys remember, when we were doing our whole Bible series, 
I intentionally told you guys that story. It comes up in a lot of places. So basically, Balaam gets hired by the Moabites, Ammonites, and he's hired to curse Israel. And just these people are doing all sorts of things. Um, they send prostitutes into the land of Israel to cause them to go against. And then God ends up cursing Israel. And then you have, you know, the plagues. And, well, not the plagues, but plagues go on to the people of Israel. And so God's looking at this and he's like, yeah, absolutely not. Moabites and Ammonites are not allowed into the people of Israel. So that's what this is referring to. And this is actually an issue that we're going to be coming back to later. This is part of what I want, of what I'm going to be talking about today. So they're still kind of on this hilltop experience though. They're still reading from the book of the law again. They're still learning things from it. And then they hear things and they're like, oh, we need to do this. So they're still riding that high. But at this point, Nehemiah goes back to Persia. And I don't actually remember why, I don't remember if it specifically says why he goes back, but he goes back to Persia and then Nehemiah comes back to Israel after being in Persia for a while. And so we're going to start to see what was happening while Nehemiah was away. Because the entire time that Nehemiah has been here, there have been problems, but overall things have been going well. So what happens as soon as Nehemiah walks away? What happens when dad looks away for five minutes and what do the kids get into? So in verse 4, it says, Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, who's Tobiah? The one He's one of the bad guys. That's right. It's important to remember these names. Tobiah and Sanballat. Who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So basically, in case you just missed what was happening, Tobiah, who, along with Sanblat, has been the source of all kinds of trouble with the Jews, like, just... Everything from chapter 3 to now, let me give you a little highlight from chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. So... This is one of the guys that was trying to assassinate Nehemiah. This is one of the guys that was trying to discourage the people. This is one of the guys that was involved in blackmailing them. And this verse, this is one of the guys who was going to get a small army together and try to just kill them. Tobiah, real stand-up guy. And you have a priest who is going into a large chamber in the temple. And he's clearing out all of God's stuff all of the offerings, all of the stores for the Levites, he's clearing it out so that Tobiah can have a real nice room in the temple of God, in the walls of the city of the people that he was trying to kill. What in the world? <laughs> Why? Why is this happening? And it says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king. So this is what's been happening while, while Nehemiah has been back with the king of Persia, and then he asks the king for permission to come back again, and he's going to see, okay, I did all of this work in this country, I was governor here for all this time, let's see what happened in the brief period that I've been away. 
And I came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry. And this is something that we talked about previously. Anger is not always a bad thing. And I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So he goes in, he sees that they're giving this room to Tobiah, and he's like, oh no. He grabs all of Tobiah's stuff, yeets it on out, and then he takes all the stuff that should have been in that room, puts it back, which is actually fairly violent. Like, imagine if someone went into your house and then just started yeeting all the furniture out. Like, your chairs are breaking, your old antique furniture that was, like, passed down your family for five generations. is like, oh, he just shattered that bad boy. Like, that kind of thing. No one would look at that and be like, I think you're overreacting, man. That's, I mean, I get that what he did was wrong, but that's not okay. But Nehemiah, that's exactly what he does. And it's not painted as a bad thing. <laughs> like, this is painted as a very good thing. And it is a very good thing. And the issue is, again, anger. We don't have a proper way to view that. I'm not going to talk about more of that more, though. But the first thing that we see is that Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem. And what is the first thing he fixes? So he comes back to Jerusalem, and first of all, do you think that this is the only place that there's problems? No. But the first place he checks, the first place he walks into, what was the most important thing for Nehemiah to check when he got back? The temple. The The very first thing that Nehemiah checked when he got back into Jerusalem was their religious life. And so we're going to be talking about, the title of this message is All to God. And we're going to be talking about the parts of our life that God owns. And the first thing is that God owns my spiritual life. And this is kind of easily to see, like, this is the most important thing. God owns my spiritual life. Well, yeah, my spiritual life is basically my relationship with God. Of course God owns that. But Nehemiah, as a government official... He is coming back to Jerusalem and the first thing he's checking, because he's not just a government official. Back in this time, there wasn't really that separation. But the first thing he's checking is the religious life of Israel, because what's the primary responsibility the Jew has? God. And it's not different in our lives. And we need to see that Nehemiah comes back and he sees what's happening and he reacts violently. He's really eager to get this taken care of. And we should have a similar view in our own life. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and cast it away from you, for it is better to enter into the kingdom of heaven missing a hand than to be thrown into the depths of hell having both hands. And it's like, that doesn't literally mean cut off your hand. If you were to cut off your hand, you wouldn't stop sinning. But it's instead saying, violently and passionately deal with the things that are wrong in your life. And Nehemiah does exactly that. He doesn't come. He doesn't ask for permission. He doesn't make the polite decision. He doesn't do the nice, caring thing, quote-unquote, Instead, he comes back and he deals with the problem and he deals with it passionately. And that's the way that we need to approach our spiritual life. So, continuing, um, that's the first thing. And I'm actually going to move on. So, the second thing, God doesn't just own my spiritual life, but God also owns my secular life. So God owns my spiritual life. God owns my secular life. And we see that the next thing that Nehemiah starts checking is he starts checking the professional functionings of the world of Jerusalem. In verse 10, it says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. 
Oh, this is actually part of the first point. I'm just going to skim past this. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses a bunch of people. Um... That's not actually what it says, but I'm not going to read all the names. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So all that to say, the very first thing that Nehemiah sets in order is the spiritual life of Jerusalem. And in our lives, the first thing that we need to set in order is the spiritual life of our lives. The spiritual life of our lives. I'm going to pretend that makes sense. Okay, so <laughs> moving on in verse 15, it says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on, on the Sabbath Excuse me, to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So what is the Sabbath? Do you guys remember? It is a holy day. Do you know, would you uh, remember what day of the week it is? Seventh. So the Sabbath is based on creation where God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rests, and then he sets that as a statute for his people forever. So for us, the Sabbath is Saturday, and we don't observe the Sabbath anymore. We're not Jews, but the Sabbath for a Jew is an extremely big deal, and you're supposed to not work at all. And so in the Old Testament, when someone was gathering sticks on the Sabbath, they found him gathering sticks, and they were like, dude, what are you doing? And they brought him to Moses, and they're like, Moses, what should we do with this guy? And Moses is like, kill him. And they killed him. And that was what they were supposed to do with people who, who violated the Sabbath. So would you say that the Sabbath is kind of a big deal? It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. <laughs> For on six days the Lord your God did work, and on the seventh day he rested, right? And so the Sabbath is a big deal. And the entirety of Jerusalem is profaning it. And for us, we read that and we're like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. But for a Jew reading this, that is massive. Like the Sabbath was the most important holiday that a Jew had, and they observed it every week. So Nehemiah is looking at this, and for us, it's a bit weird to look at the Sabbath because we don't have that. But basically, the idea of the Sabbath is who owns your resources? Who owns your resources? God, God does. We talked about that in our uh, little Leviticus escapade last time. But when we look at the Sabbath, what you see is that back then, it was extraordinarily difficult to actually produce what you needed to to survive. You know, for us, we live in the United States and we live in the modern day where we have so much abundance that our issue isn't not having enough food, but it's having so much food that we die of a heart attack. That is not the issue that the typical person back in these times would have. For them, they're all agricultural for the most part, and they are trying to produce enough food for their own family to survive the winter. And so for them, they get out there every single day, they're tending their field, they're doing their work, and they're trying to scrape by. And then God says, one day out of seven, you're allowed to do nothing. If a person, you know, if another nation attacks you, you're kind of just, sorry. 
And I mean, I'm sure they could have defended themselves, but you've got a bunch of people in their tents that are not even standing guard. You're having to trust God a lot in that. And you're having to trust God that in the six days that you're allowed to work, he's going to produce enough for you to take care of yourself on the seventh. And so God is saying, I own your resources. I'm the one who tells you when you're allowed to work and when you're not allowed to work, and you need to trust me with your resources. In a Christian's life, the most similar equivalent to this is working on Sundays, working during church, and giving, where you need to trust God that he's going to provide for you so that even as you give your funds, he's going to take care of you with what you have left. But also, you have a bunch of people who, like, they'll work on Sundays, they'll work during church. My dad talks about a guy he knew who... He needed money to repair his car. And he's like, yeah, I just need to work on Sundays because I need to pay for my car. And my dad said, do you realize who decides whether or not your engine breaks down? You think that God doesn't have control of that? You think God doesn't decide when your tires blow, when your brakes go out, when your engine stops working? You think that God doesn't decide when you suddenly have a medical emergency that you have to now pay for? You think that God doesn't decide what things come into your life? And yet you're going to take one day out of seven, the one day that God says, hey, this is mine. And you're going to skip church to go pay for, like to go make money that God can take away with you from you without a thought. And like for us, that's kind of the most similar equivalent to this when we look at the Sabbath. But the Sabbath is a big deal. So it's not just that he's trying to set the spiritual life of Jerusalem straight, but he's actually adjusting the professional life. Like when we're talking about the Sabbath, not working is a very secular decision. And yet God owns your secular life as well. So Nehemiah sets that straight. But then God owns my family life. You could also say social life. And basically, if you were to break down your life into its parts, you've got your spiritual life, that's like your religion. You've got your secular life, that's, you know, profession and everything else. And you've got your family and social life. And that's just the relationships you have, the stuff that you're not doing when you're doing the other two. Like, this is basically just breaking down your life into the three parts that comprise it. This is another, like, more in-depth way to say that God owns my whole life. And so the next thing that Nehemiah sets straight is he sets straight the family life of Jerusalem. So then in verse 23, it says, In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Which, if you remember in, you know, verse, <laughs> verse 1 of this chapter, where they talked about reading the book of the law, where it said you shall not marry Ammonites or Moabites and let them enter into the assembly of God. We just read that earlier. They just read that earlier. And they all were like, yeah, let's do it, guys. One of the things in the contract that all of these people put together and signed was not marrying foreigners. And now you see that as soon as Nehemiah is away for a little bit, he comes back and everyone's marrying foreigners. They made their New Year's resolution and they just couldn't keep it. <laughs> and so it says, And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin." Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And you see this thing where I need to specify that the issue with that is not the fact 
that they were marrying different races. Like this is kind of the second issue that I was talking to you about that comes up in Nehemiah. But a lot of people, they read the Bible and they're like, oh, the Bible's so racist. They had to go and kill all of the non-Israelites and then they, they could never marry a non-Israelite. And, you know, they look at this kind of thing where Nehemiah is getting all upset that they're marrying foreign women. They're like, you're going to tell me that a good God is this kind of a racist? But I want to talk to you guys about this. And this is what we're going to spend the rest of the time on. So what's the first thing that you notice in verse 24? Read verse 24 and tell me something about the kids. They do not know how to speak the language of Judah, right? So if they're not able to speak the language of Judah, but they're speaking the languages of the foreigner, which culture are they assimilating into? The other culture. culture. And what's part of that culture? The other religion. The other religion. That is exactly correct. And so they're taking these foreigners and they're raising their kids in the religion of these foreign languages, of these foreign, uh, these foreign peoples. And then you also see in verse 26, it said, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. Solomon had all the wisdom. Solomon was very righteous in his early life. And we kind of look back on Solomon and we're like, man, what an idiot. You had all the wisdom of God and you still just blew it like that? But that is not how Israelites viewed Solomon. Israelites viewed Solomon as the best of them. And then he was led astray by foreign women. So it's important to see that like, okay, the issue, is it, is it, is the issue that like Solomon took his first wife and it was the the daughter of the Egyptian? Like, is that really the issue? Or is the issue the fact that at the end of his life, he was building idols on all of the high places around Jerusalem and was offering sacrifices on them? And so the issue is not that they married a foreign person. The issue is that they were assimilating into foreign religions. And I actually kind of want to go through this with you. So this is uh, referencing Deuteronomy chapter 7, and it says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. So God is saying, do not participate in the, is, in the religions of foreign peoples in the place that I'm sending you. But now I want you guys to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we're going to do a little brief study on this. Because it's actually extremely important that you guys understand this. Because this is one of those things. What is it? Deuteronomy chapter 20. Let me actually write that on the board. So it's extremely important that you guys understand this. Because you're going to go into your schools. You're going to talk to people who don't actually know what the Bible says. But they participate in what we call meme theology. Where they, uh, they have like a single verse that they saw on a meme somewhere. And then they're like, I could never believe the Bible because of this. And this is one of those issues that you're going to hear about a lot. The racism and the violence and the evilness of God. And so we need to address it. So Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 18. Uh, Who wants to read verses 10 through 12? Adelaide, I saw your hand first. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor 
for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's the first thing that you see in that? Is God saying go into Israel and kill everyone? No. God is send, sending the people of Israel into the land of Canaan to conquer the, the nation, absolutely. But God never says, kill everyone in it. There are specific places, like specific towns that he said, kill everyone in it, like the town of Jericho. But let me ask you, was there anyone in the town of Jericho that didn't get killed? Who? Rahab and her family. That's right. So God said, go kill everyone in the uh, city of Jericho. And yet the one family that had aligned themselves with Israel and who had aligned themselves with the God of Israel, they were allowed to live. So God obviously didn't mean kill everyone regardless of anything else. And you remember from chapter seven, the issue was their religion, right? But instead, in verse 13, And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, and you shall put all of its males to the sword, but the women and little ones, the livestock, and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. And thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not the cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you to, uh, for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezrites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the, all as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So you do see that like the alternative is kill everyone. And the issue is, God is conquering this nation. He is giving it to Israel. But the issue is not the ethnicity of the people in the nation. Instead, the issue is the religion. For example, Moses. Would you say Moses was a pretty righteous guy? You know something special about Moses? He wrote both of the sections that we just read. He was a prophet of God. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And let me tell you a little something about the person that wrote the first five books of the Bible. Here's a fun little piece of trivia. Did you know that Moses was married to a black woman? In Numbers chapter 12, it says Miriam and, Moses, uh, sorry, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. So the Cushites were a people in Ethiopia. So Moses marries a foreigner. She was a Cushite woman. Moses, the prophet of God, Moses, the one who just wrote the sections that we just read, married a non-Israelite. And Aaron and Miriam were really upset about it. And they spoke against them. And then God gets really angry at Miriam and Aaron for speaking against Moses. He gives Miriam leprosy and he's like, what'd you just say about Moses? But we see that Moses is never actually punished or in any way doing any wrong by marrying a foreigner. Because what's the issue? Is it the ethnicity? It's the religion. And I'm going to give you guys more examples. Another one. Have you guys ever read the book of Ruth? So the book of Ruth is a story. It comes after the book of Judges, and it's during the time of the Judges where a woman named Naomi goes into the land of Moab because there's a famine in Israel with her husband and her two sons. And while they're in Moab, Naomi's two sons both marry uh, Moabitess women, one of which is named Ruth, and the other which is named something that I can't remember. Uh, is it Oprah? Okay, Oprah. So 
They marry Moabites, and then Naomi's husband dies, both of her sons die, and then she goes back to Israel with Ruth. And it's like an entire story of Ruth taking on the religion of Israel and then eventually being married by Boaz. Now, let me, let me just have you check in uh, Nehemiah 13 verse 1 again. What, what, were the, what were the peoples that you weren't supposed to intermarry with? The Moabites and the Ammonites. Wasn't Ruth a Moabite? And yet, did anyone have any problems at all with the fact that Boaz married a Moabitess? It's actually exactly the opposite. He goes before the elders of the city and he says, Moab, Ruth, I have heard the reports about you that you are a woman of excellent character. And the elders of the city may say, may Ruth be like Tamar, who bore Perez, and may she be fruitful for you like the nations of Israel, or something like that. And it's actually a very good thing, because what was Ruth's religion? Yeah, she converted, what you would call Yahwism. So she converted to the religion of God, and then she was allowed into the nation of Israel. Other examples, do you guys remember the name Uriah the Hittite? Who was Uriah the Hittite? He was with David. He was one of David's mighty men. He was also the husband of Bathsheba, which it's a lot easier to remember the name of Bathsheba. So Uriah, what, what was Uriah's ethnicity? What was he? Hittite. He was a Hittite. Yes, Uriah the Hittite was in fact a Hittite. So Uriah was not an Israelite, and yet he was one of David's mighty men. He lived in Jerusalem. And he was demonstrated as being more righteous than David in that specific circumstance. Wow! Did you know that both Rahab and Ruth are in the line of Jesus? And all that to say, it's very common for people to look at the Bible and they're like, oh, the Bible's so racist and evil and it's so against foreign women and it's so against foreign men. But there's law after law about the way that you treat the sojourner and the foreigner among you. And that you shall remember that you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, and so you shall be kind to the sojourner among you. And Israel was supposed to be kind of like the United States. Not in the sense that the United States is like a botched, kind of morally corrupt nation, but in the sense that we're kind of a nation of immigrants, right? A lot of people refer to us in that way. Israel was supposed to be a nation of immigrants. People were supposed to be coming into Israel, joining the assembly, becoming members of the religion of God, and that was actually the intention but they could not bring their idols with them. And so that's something that's very important. But all that to say, at the end of the book, and one of the sons of Jehoiada, I'm actually going to skip that, thus I cleansed from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided the wood offering at the appointed times, and for, excuse me, and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. So that's the end of the book. Nehemiah has written this entire self-report to God about the way that he governed Israel and handled all the stuff that was happening in there. And if there's one thing you could say about Nehemiah, it's that he had follow-through. For years and years and years, he didn't just feel sad about Jerusalem that one day when he was in the king's court bearing some wine, but he prayed about it, he was broken about it, God gave him the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and set things right. And for years and years and years, amidst all sorts of opposition, Nehemiah was faithful. And even when he came back and he saw that no one else was, he set things straight again and he was faithful. So I want to encourage you guys. God owns your whole life. 
And a lot of times it's easy to kind of forget that. It's easy to kind of just come to church on Sundays and be a Christian here, and then during the rest of your life, not even give a thought to God. But God is watching and God cares about the way that you live every part of your life, not just the time you spend in these four walls. So give God your whole life. Think about how am I serving God in my spiritual life? How am I serving God in my secular life? How am I serving God in my family life? Not even the decision about who you marry is outside of your service to God. It's actually a part of it. But also make sure you have follow through. It's very easy to read things. It's very easy to hear things. And it's very easy to have an emotional high that lasts for a week and a half, but there's no real commitment behind it. Be the kind of person that has follow through. Do the work have the discipline. Don't just join the basketball team, but go to practice. Right? So with that, let's bow our heads, pray it out, and then we'll discuss. (sighs) Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. And thank you for the example that you've given us of a faithful man. Nehemiah was a governor. He was a leading government official. And not many of us will necessarily be in that circumstance. But Lord, Nehemiah was a person who every aspect of his life was before your eyes. And he actively lived for you. Nehemiah is a story of personal devotion. It's a story of personal devotion from someone who was not a priest. Just like many of us will not be priests. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to look at the way that Nehemiah functioned and look at the way that Nehemiah prioritized his relationship with you in every part of his life and the way that he enforced those things in Jerusalem. And I pray that we would be inspired by that, to be that kind of faithful person. I pray that each of us would strive to live our lives for you in every aspect and in every way and that we would repent when we fall short and then do better next time. And I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hey,